0: Stand real quick. Sorry, Crystal. That, that's all right. That's okay. Now you're fine. You just stand real quick as we hear God's word read, and then we will we will uh, pray. Let's do that. Second Corinthians three sixteen through eighteen. I just want us to consider this text, and then we will we will pray. This is God's word. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. It is the steadfast anchor of the soul to see and read these promises, which are profound. Lord, we will spend all eternity trying to grasp the height and the depth and the, and the breadth and the width of the love of Christ for us. Would you help us plumb those depths a little further today? We ask, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Today we're going to consider uh, our last se- uh, doctrine in the series on the Reformation, Reformation doctrines. Um, and today I would actually argue what's typically called the five solas of the Reformation, the five onlys of the Reformation and today, you might the one we're going to talk about today is very simple. It's actually not a complicated one, uh, and I would call it actually the, the foundational stone or the capstone, if you will, of all the other solas, which is the glory of God. The God's glory is the, if, if Scripture is, is the, the formative principle that guides the rest of the Reformation, then God's glory alone is the capstone by which the jewel in the crown of the Reformation. Uh, and I, I just want us to consider just several texts before we jump into that. I just want you to hear Scripture's witness about God's glory. If you don't already know, this will be helpful just to prime the pump a little bit. Listen to what God's Word says about His own glory. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Or Psalm 115, listen to it. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Listen to what God says from his own mouth through the prophet Isaiah. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. And what we're hearing about today probably isn't new information to you. But I would argue that I think we live in a generation right now that is one of the most confused that has ever been in regard to purpose, the purpose of our life. We'll often hear people say, I don't know what my purpose is. Country songs, country songs galore. We'll talk about, uh, I'm I'm on this kick right now of listening to the song, My Next 30 Years by Tim McGraw, maybe you know it. But he he says, because I'm I'm almost turning 30, right? So I'm looking forward to my life, forward. he says a line in there that really bothers me, because he says, the next 30 years, maybe I'll figure out what I'm here for. And if you ever picked up on that, country songs especially, they're always like, what's my purpose? We'll have to figure out what my purpose is. I would argue we live in a purposeless society because people have lost the chief purpose by which they're to live for, which is God's glory. I will argue, and, and what ends up happening is you get people that, that live for their own glory. And then that, what's, what that leaves them is feeling very, 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 very empty. So I want to argue this today. And we're not just going to look at God's glory, but I want us to interact with how does God's glory belong to God while humans can share it? That's the question. See, see we, we will say, okay, yeah, 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 we, we believe to God's glory, to, to God be the glory alone. We just sang that. We agree with that. But how can God's glory belong to him and we share in it? Because me and you are sharing in God's glory One day. So I want to argue this. This is it's very simple and it's actually a, a modification that Piper suggests from the Westminster Confession which says to to the glory of God alone means that the chief end of man is to glorify God. That is the chief purpose of man is to glorify God. Here's the key marker that Piper changes. By enjoying him forever. So so the Westminster Confession, it says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. No, Piper goes and qualifies it and says, no, it is the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. And the question is, does Scripture teach this? And I would say, Scripture teaches this everywhere. Let me show you to one place. Jump down to 2 Corinthians 3. The book of Second Corinthians, if you remember, obviously Paul wrote it to the Corinthians, but this is not the first letter that he wrote to them. He wrote to them First Corinthians, in, in which he actually says some pretty scathing words, some scathing rebukes to them. And in the meantime of writing first and Second, First Corinthians and apparently there's a third letter as well we don't have access to but Second Corinthians he has basically delayed in coming to them. And what began to happen is actually these people called, he calls them later, super apostles had come in amongst them and basically started to say, Paul, you know, that guy's a real loser. That guy's a real loser. We shouldn't listen to Paul. He's a meanie pants. We shouldn't listen to him. He's not even, he doesn't even have a letter of recommendation. The apostles don't even recognize him. And you can imagine, I don't know if you've ever had somebody doubt your own qualifications for something, but when you do, you very quickly could get what? defensive? annoyed? how dare them? how dare them say that of me? And one of these claims that stands at the heart of the letter is a desire for them the church to want a letter of recommendation from Paul. And notice again what Paul says in verse 1. 2 Corinthians 3:1. He says, "Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you?" Now remember, Paul was not one of the initial apostles. He was, but these super apostles are coming in and they're saying, well, Paul, we have letters, letters of recommendation maybe. And, and Paul, he doesn't have one, so we're better than he is. We shouldn't listen to what he's saying any, more, any longer. And I don't, know if, if, I don't know about you, but if I was Paul, I would have been like, how dare you people? <laughs> My letter would have sounded a lot different than Paul's. Thankfully, I'm not writing scripture. Paul could have said, how dare you? I brought you this message of the gospel. Don't you know who I am? But notice what Paul argues. Jump down to verse 2. He says, you yourselves. Notice what he says. Go back to verse 1. Do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts or on your hearts to be known and read by all. And, to sh- and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human heart. Notice what Paul says there. He says, you want a letter of recommendation? Here, I'll give you one. Go look in a mirror. You are your own letter, my, my re- letter of recommendation, Since you have come to saving faith, since you have come to see the Spirit of God work within your heart, you are my letter of recommendation. These Corinthian believers are a letter that from Christ delivered by the apostles, by the apostle. You want a letter of recommendation? Look in a mirror, y'all. But notice how he compares this. I think this is really interesting. Notice what he says, jump down to verse 2. He says, and you show that you're a letter delivered from Christ, delivered by us. So he's saying that the the letter that has come to you is that God has wrote now on your heart. But notice what he compares that to. He says, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Now if you remember, what he's doing there is he's picking up on a very, very prominent reality in the Old Testament, which would have been the Ten Commandments. If you remember, the Ten Commandments were written, it says they were written by God to Moses. So, so Moses, uh, Exodus 34, you can jump there or you can just see it, us on the screen. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I've made a covenant or a promise with you and with Israel." So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. He wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And what Paul picks up here is he says, remember those ten words? What's called the ten words, the Ten Commandments? He says, God wrote on the tablets of stone, but now he's written on mine and yours hearts. God doesn't write anymore on the tablets of stone. Now, notice what he says. He says, that's, that's why. He says, and you show that you're a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, as the Ten Commandments were, but on the tablets of the human heart. Now, notice what he goes on to say. I think this is very interesting. He says in verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in and of ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So I want us to see our sufficiency from God. Now I think it's interesting that Paul, even the Apostle Paul, One of the greatest missionaries, we would argue, of all time is being criticized by one of his churches as not having letters of recommendation. And he looks at them and he says, my sufficiency isn't from letters of recommendation. My sufficiency is from God. And if this is true of Paul, may may I say, brothers and sisters, how much more so this is true for us. Paul's confidence is not in letters of recommendation, but in God who makes Paul sufficient for the task— God is the one who makes Paul a sufficient minister of the new covenant. So I want us to see three things here from this. First, I want us to see that we are ministers of the new covenant. Now, Paul explicitly was a minister of the new covenant because he was an apostle of the new covenant. But he's saying, and I think there's a very clear application here for us, that we are now, in light of what Paul was, we are ministers of the new covenant. Notice what he says again in verse 5. He says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Because when when Paul speaks, now Paul's speaking Holy Scripture, but when we speak, we're reflecting the the apostolic witness. Now the letter here, so notice he he, he gets these kind of two comparisons. He says the letter and then the Spirit. The letter does not mean that somehow letters and words are wrong. He's saying that the Old Testament, he's not saying also that the Old Testament is somehow bad. The letter here is a reference to the Old Covenant. And he's saying, we now speak according to the Spirit who changes hearts. So I think it's very important at this moment to just pause for a second and just ask, what are the kind of things that we typically find our sufficiency in? And I would just say, if you're a Christian here today, we need to stop trying to establish our own sufficiency. This is true for me. This is true for you. This is true for all of us. Brothers and sisters, our sufficiency is not found in eloquence. Our sufficiency is not found in our parenting Our sufficiency isn't found in our job. Our sufficiency isn't found in our relationships. Our sufficiency isn't found in trying hard. Our sufficiency isn't found in any of the numerous things that we try to concoct. Our sufficiency is found in God. God is the one who makes us sufficient. And he doesn't do it by saying, well, you know what? You're okay today. you've, You've tried hard enough. I've cleaned you up. Notice, I think what Dane Ortlund says here is so helpful. He says, the fundamental battle as we roll out of bed each day is to settle our hearts on the deeply counterintuitive truth of this text. Mainly, our okayness, our enoughness, our sufficiency, our adequacy is a gift to be received, not a prize to be earned. I want to say that one more time. Our sufficiency, Paul's sufficiency here as an apostle, as a minister, and the same is true. If this is true of Paul, how much more so of you? Our sufficiency is a gift to be received, not a prize to be earned. So we are ministers of the new covenant in that sense. And our sufficiency does not come from ourselves; it comes from God, who is the Spirit. We'll see more of that in a second. I want us to see, secondly, that we are ministers of the Spirit— and not of the letter. We're ministers of the Spirit, and not of the letter. Not that we are sufficient, in, notice what he says again in verse 5, not that we're sufficient in and ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not, by, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now it's important to remember at this point what Jesus promised. The new covenant has been sealed with Jesus' own blood. And now the Spirit works as the, within the basis of coming from the risen and reigning Lord. Jesus, who is currently ruling and reigning from heaven, has sent the Holy Spirit to be our helper. Notice what Jesus says in John 14 even. And I'll ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. Now, we're going to look at the glory, God's glory, in just a little while. But if you remember in the Old Testament, God's glory always dwelt in the temple and in the tabernacle but where does God's glory dwell now? God's glory actually is what, and this is what Paul's really saying here too, is because the Spirit of God dwells in us, in a heart that has has the law written on it, he says, you know him, that is the Spirit of the living God, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I'm not sure about you, but I don't walk around with a disposition being like, Well, I'm the temple of God. I don't walk around like that. Because if I did, I would live a lot differently. Every time I would sin, it would grieve me. Why? Because the temple of the living God ought not to do this. And every time I wander or, or stray or fear or fret or wonder, I can look back and remember God has changed me. You know him, listen to Jesus' words, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Listen to Jesus' words again. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Brothers and sisters, we are ministers of the Spirit and not of the letter. I want us to see, thirdly, that we are ministers of life and not of death. Again, notice what he says there. So we're ministers of life and not of death. 2 Corinthians 3, look at verse 6. He says, who has made us sufficient or adequate to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, as we just saw. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. I want to say at this point, and I always want to make applications for non-Christians, but if you're not a Christian sitting here today, I want to encourage you something. I I want you to hear this in the nicest way possible. I want you to hear this come out of my mouth. If you're not a Christian here today, I want to tell you, you are not sufficient in yourself. Your efforts to try to be sufficient, whether that's through obedience, white-knuckling obedience in your own strength, you will try, but I hope you see today, you will never succeed. You will never, and you can never succeed the desire to prove yourself is an evidence that you're trying to establish your own sufficiency. May I just say, for the Christian though, when we enjoy Christ by the Spirit of God, we don't seek our own sufficiency. When we enjoy God in the face of Jesus Christ, we bring God glory. Because we're ministers not of death, but of life. To God to the glory of God alone means that the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And we do that because we're ministers of life, not of death. I want us to see two. Go with me down. Jump jump, jump down to verse 7. We're covering a lot of text today, but I think it's important we go here. I want us to see Paul compare. Now, he's going to compare two things here in verses 7 through 18. He's going to compare the promises and the veils, okay? So, the glory. I want you to see first the glory of the promises. The glory of the promises. Again, we're covering a lot of text, but I want us to see it all together. He says, now, if the ministry of death that is carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glory? Now, notice what he's saying here. He's he's actually picking up on what uh, Jeremiah read for us this morning in Exodus 34. I'll I'll actually read it for us. When, When Moses got the Ten Commandments and came down off the mountain, notice what it says of him. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets, that is the Ten Commandments, of the testimony in his hand, as he came down the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he was talking with God. And he goes on and says, Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face had shone, and they were afraid to come near. Now notice what's happening here. Moses meets with God. He comes down off the mountain, and his face is shining. doesn't even know it. And the people, immediately, I don't know about you, but I haven't seen somebody's face shine like that. I think I would have been like, whoa, what's going on over there? What happened on that mountain? And they're afraid. But notice what it says. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, the people of Israel came near, and he commanded all that the Lord had spoken with him at Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Now notice why he does it. This is very important. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with God. So the veil actually wasn't for Moses' sake. The veil was actually for everyone else's sake. And the veil was actually there because Moses' face was so brilliant, so shining with God's glory, Because why? He had been talking to God face to face. Moses received the law, the Ten Commandments, on Mount Sinai. He spoke with God. God, Moses saw his face, and he was shining now in light of it. But notice what Paul Paul picks up here and says. Now if the ministry of death, jump back to verse 7. If the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory, such glory that Moses' face was shining, jump down to verse 8. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? So the ministry of the Spirit is actually greater than the ministry of death. The ministry of the Spirit is greater than death. And Paul argues that the glory that Moses had would fade over time. Now, we'll actually see this near the end of the book of Exodus. If you follow this along, trace this out a little further, you would see that actually as Moses was getting ready to die, he still looked like a young man, but the glory that once shone on his face was actually gone. There was no more glory. You could no longer see a shining face. And Paul's point here is that the ministry of the Spirit is far greater because we don't have a glory that's fading like Moses. Me and you have a glory that doesn't depend on me and you. Me and you have a glory that is actually brought about in us by the Spirit of the living God. The glory that kept the people back in the Old Testament is now the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says in another place. But if Christ is in you, this is Romans 8, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Don't miss what he just said right there. Though the body, apart from Christ, is dead because of sin, the spirit is life within us because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to our mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells within us. And Paul's point here is that's far greater than this old old covenant glory in that way. But notice what else he says. So the ministry of the Spirit is, is, is greater than death, the ministry of death. But I want you to see too that the ministry of righteousness is actually greater than the ministry of condemnation. Now the ministry of condemnation there is simply the ministry that that the law brought. And the law, like we saw the other week, was the law brought a revealing of sin. And our sin, when it, it, it encountered the law, created in us death, continued to create in us death. But notice what he says. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. You know, the law's only purpose was to reveal our sin, and when our sin saw that law, what it did is it condemned us. And what he's saying here is he's saying that the ministry of righteousness, that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit, imputing to us the righteousness of Christ, is far greater. It's far, far greater. I want us to see too that the, So the glory of the promises. I want us to see this last promise, is it's the permanent, surpassing glory. You know, I, uh, I was thinking about this actually the other day, and uh, I was watching some of the Michigan game, and I was thinking about uh, Tom Brady, if you know. I don't like Tom Brady, by the way. He's not, a, he's not a big fan, but he's won a lot of Super Bowls. And I want you to think about how silly it would have been if Tom Brady, maybe he's won like six Super Bowls or whatever, how silly it would have been when Tom Brady meets people, if he would have walked up and said to them, because I think he won a state championship too, if he walked up to them and he's like, hi, I'm Tom Brady. I won a state championship once. Now, if you know, the Super Bowl is like the highest of the highest awards, okay? You don't have any higher level of football, okay? How silly would it have been, though, if Tom Brady would have been like, I won two state championships. We'd all be like, Tom, you're a six-time Super Bowl winner. Who cares that you won this lower glory? And his point here is actually very similar, He's saying that the glory, there's a greater glory that we possess right now. So we shouldn't look back to the old glory. We shouldn't rejoice in the old glory in the same way. Notice what he says. Verse 10, jump down to verse 10. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. And in the same way, you think about that example with Tom Brady. Tom Brady does not look back at his past glory and say, yeah, you know, I won two state championships. There'd be tons of people every year win state championships. Who cares, Tom? You've won Super Bowls. That's what matters. There's a greater glory that you possess. Notice what he then says. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. You know, the glory that, that, that we see is, not right, is right now greater than the glory they had in the Old Testament. And you can think back to all those stories. They were led by smoke and fire in the wilderness. They saw God's glory fall upon the tabernacle and keep the people out. We could go on and on and on and on and on. And Paul's point here is to say, me and you possess a greater glory right now. And where do we possess it? In the face of Jesus Christ. When we look at our Savior, our crucified, risen, and ruling Savior, we have a greater glory because we have the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. David Van Drunen says very helpfully, I think, He says, the glory that rested over the tabernacle now rests upon each one of us, making us temples of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit who revealed God's glory in the cloud of the old and and now, most eminently in Christ, enthroned in heaven, is already at work in us. To have Christ's Spirit is to share in Christ's glory. I want you to hear that last line one more time. To have Christ's. Christ's spirit is to share in Christ's glory. Notice again, even if you turn there to 1 Corinthians 6, notice even the way he argues. He says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Here's the conclusion. So glorify God with your body. To the glory of God alone means that the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. So we see the glory of the promises, and I want us to see finally the veils, the veils of the covenants. As me and you share in the Spirit of Christ, we share Christ's glory, and it's a foretaste of the glory that's coming. Now, notice what he says. He says, the veils of the covenants. I want you to just notice what he says. Jump down to verse 12. He says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are very bold. Not like Moses, verse 13, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. I want us to see Moses and the veil of concealment. You know, that veil that, that Moses would place over his face was put there because the people were afraid. But it was also put there for another reason. Moses did not want them to see his glory and think there's no greater glory coming. Paul is driving home here for the Corinthians that the veil that was placed over Moses' face because he did not want them believing or thinking they were the height of God's revelation into humanity you can just imagine why he would have put that veil there. They would be thinking, this is so great. Look at how awesome this is. God's, God's meeting with Moses, and then he's coming and he's talking to us. This is great. And Moses placed that veil over his face to remind the people that the greatness is coming. The greatness is future. The greatness is not there yet. Moses' face those spectacular, could have led the people to believe they were the height of God's dealing with his people. But I want us to see that there's actually something far greater coming. Now notice what he says. So it says Moses in the veil of, of, of um, concealment. I want us to see then Israel in the veil of unbelief. Now Paul, what he's going to do here is Paul's going to take that physical veil that Moses talked about, and he's going to apply it now spiritually. Notice what he says. He says, It's not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was the, being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that's the old promise, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Paul makes a turn here, and he takes that physical veil that Moses had, and he applies it and says, the people of Israel actually have a veil over their hearts. And I would actually say, not only the people of Israel, but all unbelievers. They have a veil over their heart that when they see Christ, they reject Him. And to reject Christ is to reject the very glory of God. When you share the gospel with somebody, and their heart is hard toward it, Do you just sit there and go, come on, man, come on, you should just see this is true? Maybe. But if their heart is hard to it, how does it become soft? God has to change their heart. He has to remove the veil in order for them to see. They are like people who dwell, those people who, um... Hmm. give me just a second, I'm sorry. Sometimes my notes are very helpful. Sometimes they're very not. And you're seeing one of the very not moments. So, Israel and the veil of unbelief. We'll just go there and then we'll end with this. Where's this all going? Ultimately, where this is going is when we see God's glory now, we don't look at a temple, we don't look at a tabernacle, we don't look at a smoking fire that's leading us in the wilderness we look at a person. We don't look, and this is why it's so beautiful. All of the passages, if you ever look at any passage in the Old Testament that talks about God's glory, I would argue the reason why it's so, it's kind of strange to even see what's happening, it's because God's glory isn't a thing. God's glory is a person. God's glory is a person, and he has revealed himself in the face of Jesus Christ. Notice again, John, John, twelve. I, I, I don't think this is in your notes, and it's not up on the screen. But I want you to hear it. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. Now that's the glory that we saw earlier in Isaiah six, and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And I want us to see finally that we're beholding the glory of God. And then this is where this is all driving to for Paul. It's beholding the glory of God. Now notice, this is a very complex sentence, and I want us to take just a second to work through it, and then we'll close. But he says in verse 16, he says, "'But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom.'" And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, I want you to notice how many times the word Lord is used in this text. I count maybe one, two, three, four, six times. What's so complicated about this sentence is that we would understand the three persons of the Trinity being there. So he who is the Lord? I would argue that it's this. The Father removes the veil when we turn to Christ. Notice verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, that is to turn to Christ, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Wait a second. I thought you just said the Lord is the one who removes the veil. Yes. Yes. That's why when we come to Christ, we, are, we come to God the Spirit is the one who brings freedom to walk in obedience. But then notice what he says in verse 18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. Who do we behold? Christ through his word. He is the glory of God that we behold. And that is where we're going. So the glory of God alone means that the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. But notice what he says again in verse 18. I think this is very important and we'll end here. He says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit." as we behold Jesus Christ, who is the very image of God, we are transformed by the Spirit of God within us. Listen to just several other texts of Scripture, I think, are very helpful. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Or John 1, 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Day Orland, I think, is very helpful just as we close up here. This is what he says. As we gaze at Christ in the pages of the Bible, the Holy Spirit is molding us even now into the final resplendent Radiance that will be of such a bright beauty that the world will not be able to stand the sight. Brothers and sisters, the glory of God alone means that the chief end, our chief end, is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. So I want us to actually take just a minute and reflect on what we've heard here today. Because I want you to notice again what He says in verse 17. Now, the, spirit of the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And I just want to end here with this. I would argue one of the biggest debates in our own heart is what really will bring us freedom. It's one of the main biggest debates because it's one of the chief sins of humanity. That basically that sin will somehow bring freedom to us. And I would argue from this text and just from Scripture in general that the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So, brothers and sisters, I want to ask very kindly, where do you think your freedom comes from? Does it come from more obedience unto Christ, or does it come from some other petty thing? Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. I want us to take a minute and pause and reflect on that, and then I'm going to close us. Father, one of the struggles of my heart, and I've watched within even others the same, that, Lord, we need to define rightly where true freedom is found. And true freedom isn't found in a political party. True freedom isn't found in our sin. True freedom is not found in our rebellion. True freedom is found, Lord Jesus, when we delight in you. And the only way we delight in you is by your Spirit. So God, would you get great glory today as we put our sin to death and we live with the freedom that you have purchased. Help us, we pray in this. Give us what we need, we ask. Lord, you are our sufficiency. Help us to believe that. Help us to walk in step with it, we pray. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.